Well, hello friends. Uh, my name's Brad. I am part of the teaching and leadership team here at uh, Jericho Ridge, and it's our pleasure and our privilege to have you with us as we move together uh, into this fall season. And I don't know what hobbies or activities have kind of kept you sane over the last year and uh, a bit, but one of those activities for me has been backcountry hiking. And I just love getting out into the wilderness and just exploring. Um, I find I can connect with God there in a meaningful way, and I find it's good for my mental health, and I'm very refreshed when I do that. But one of the things about the backcountry is that it's very easy to get lost in the back country because there's not signage like there is on most of the trails that you might go on. So, for example, this last uh, spring, I went for a hike in Chilliwack Lake Provincial Park, and there's no cell service in uh, that park, and so I left, as a good backcountry hiker, my safety plan with my good buddy Larry. And uh, I said, Larry, I'm going out for the afternoon. I will call you that evening to let you know that I am safe and I have made it out safely. So I told Larry all the things you're supposed to tell your safety buddy. The trail you're going on, how long you're going to be, what happens if you don't get back, who to call, all of those types of things. And then I left the same information in my car because I didn't want to be one of those people whom you see on the news Search and rescue going out after them because they've taken some horrible wrong turn. So this is all good, except there's only one problem with my plan. And that is, I had given Larry the wrong trail. So the signpost in my defense was broken at the trailhead. And uh, so I just began blissfully striking out along what was a clear trail and hiking and hiking and hiking. And eventually... I came upon a lake, and I thought to myself, why, oh, this is a beautiful lake. But I do recall on the map the lake being on my left-hand side, and this lake is clearly on my right-hand side. And I thought, well, maybe I just missed a little trail that sort of bunnied off at the beginning of the lake, and I just ended up on the wrong side of the lake, just in this particular part of the hike. I'll just keep going, because there seemed like there was a clear trail. And a few more hours in on the hike, I saw a mountain. And the mountain was on my right-hand side, and I thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm sure in my hike planning that the mountain should be on my left-hand side, and in fact, I should be, by this point, gaining some elevation. And I thought, well, I, there's still little diamonds of trail markers ahead. So I am on a trail headed in some direction. And about 10 miles in, I came to a lake that I knew and recognized as Green Drop Lake. And I realized, oh, I know where I am. I know how to get back from where I am but I am nowhere near where I told Larry that I was going to be. The whole time, I had been just blissfully and happily going in the wrong direction. Have you ever had an experience like that? Maybe you missed your freeway exit and you thought, that's okay, I'll just keep driving and see if I recognize something along the way. Maybe you went over the Portman Bridge by accident at some point. 
Maybe you've headed into the wrong classroom in a school setting, and as they started, you thought, I'm not in the right place. Or on the ferries, they always make that announcement, this ferry is going to Horseshoe Bay. If you're not on going to Horseshoe Bay, you should get off, which by the time the ferry is ready to start and go. Maybe you've experienced the social scorn of heading the wrong way down a clearly marked one-way arrow at the grocery store during the time of COVID. But in the book of Ephesians that we're studying together this fall, the author, the Apostle Paul, attempts to describe and provide a bit of like a trail map or a road map for Christian living and experience. And we're going to look today at chapter 2, and we're going to see that Paul describes a very common problem, and that is when we go too far down the wrong path. What happens, and how can we think about getting back onto the right path, and we embrace the radical rescue and grace-filled solution that God has done for us in Christ? So uh, if you have your Bibles or on your devices, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Sections of the uh, reading will come up on the screen, but not long sections. So I would encourage you to have a physical Bible ready uh, and bring it with you so that you can know where we are. We have extras available for you. You can talk to Pastor Wally at the back at any time, and he'd be happy to provide uh, one for you. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. begins in this way. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live in that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, uh, not God's emotions, but God's righteous justice, just like everyone else. So the image that is being used here is very similar to my trail hike. And Paul is saying that left to our own devices, as human beings, we have an innate capacity to strike out in the wrong direction. And often the problem is that we are fully confident and convinced that we are walking in the best and most sincere pathway. And we, Paul says, this is uh, like following our own instincts and desires. Now, this has become a little bit of a mantra these days in the contemporary Western world. We say things like, you do you, or follow your heart. And oftentimes that's very innocent. We're just trying to convey maybe a deeper sense of invitation to congruence with who you are as an individual for authenticity's sake. But some of it is not very helpful. For example, all of us have in our own lives desires that if we were to follow them or chase them down too far would be profoundly unhelpful and unhealthy. I have desires in my life like spending a whole lot of money on things that I can't afford which would lead me to a place of indebtedness that would be unhelpful and unhealthy. Or think about a person who has a, a proclivity toward anger. 
We don't say to them, you do you, just fly off the handle whenever you want. You say, no, you should probably work on that a little bit in some way. We don't tell them, well, that's just how God made you. Just go ahead and follow that down. People have passionate sexual desires that would take them outside of a covenantal relationship to find fulfillment in things like pornography or sexual partners to whom they are not committed. And so Paul introduces here a very common New Testament theme about following our desires, the desires of the mind or of the body, can in fact lead us to ruin. And the Bible lumps this, the New Testament in particular, lumps this under a large term called the flesh or the desires of the flesh. And the scriptural authors recognize that there's a problem with our own innately fleshy senses of what we should be doing and about. And those things will seldom put us on the path to life and flourishing. And so the New Testament warns often against just following the desires of the flesh, our heart or our mind, that it's not often a wise course of action because your heart is not a very reliable guide. It can lead us astray in many, many ways. And so we need to pay attention to this. And on top of this, Paul says that uh, in addition to just the, the innate sense of desiring to follow our own passions and desires that are negative, that there's two other forces that are at work in these situations in our lives where we are cross-pressured. And the scripture is compellingly clear that we live as contemporary Pentecostal theologian Cheryl Bridges John says and tweeted out this week, we live in a pneumatic cosmos. Pneuma meaning spirit. In other words, there are spiritual powers at work that are very much a reality in our world. And their primary task, at least those that are oriented toward evil, is taking us away from God. And Paul uses the language here in Ephesians of principalities and powers to describe this. And we often think that in a modern world, we're all too sophisticated for this. But we need to keep in mind that we live in a world where unseen evil forces exist and they exert their influence on the world and on us subtly but powerfully. The devil... And forces of evil are very much a reality, not just for Peter when he goes to Tanzania and deals with witchcraft-related killings, but here in our world and in our day-to-day lives. And Paul uses the language of principalities and powers to describe this, but he is not saying by that that there is a demon under every problem that you encounter. If your car won't start... It might be a demon in the carburetor, or you might just need to take it to the mechanic. You may need to pay attention, but not give too much real estate to the forces of evil. Striking out too far in either direction in that conversation is unhelpful. C.S. Lewis said it this way, you can give the devil either too much or too little attention, and either one is problematic and unhelpful. So we have our flesh, 
our desires that are negative, pulling us in certain directions, the devil, and then Ephesians 2 talks about something called just generally the world. And now sometimes the world is a neutral term in the Bible, just describing the cosmos, that which exists. But here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's using it in a particular sense, in a slightly negative way. He's talking about the ethos, the air which we breathe, the environmental conditions in which we live here and now, the conditions of the world. And the conditions of the world are not always helpful and healthy for human flourishing. Think of uh, the summer months, now a distant memory as of Friday's rainstorm. But remember in the summer, and for the past couple of summers actually, we've had air quality advisories here in the valley. And that's because we've had all of this pollutant, this particulate matter that has come from forest fires, and it, it comes into the air in our space, and, and then we breathe it in, and we actually get polluted as a result of this. And Paul's saying a very similar thing, that, that spiritually, the places in which we have, inhabit, the air which we breathe, some of it can be unhelpful for us. Eugene Peterson, in his transliteration of this uh, text in the message, put it this way. He says, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief, and then you exhaled disobedience. What you inhale, you're likely to exhale. And so we need to pay attention to what's going on around us. And this is not just true of culture, uh, but of subculture as well. So for example, there are some expressions of contemporary and historic Christianity that are actually polluted because of the air that they have taken into that system. The unhelpful air of the world has gotten into that in some way. And oftentimes, just like, you know, when the particulate matter gets really, really bad, we can see it, but when it's a little bit bad, we're not as attuned to it. Sometimes we're breathing in things that we don't even know how unhealthy it is. American author and liturgist Aaron Nyquist, not to pick on Americans or American evangelicalism, but said this week on Facebook, if our Christianity has become more about capitalism and personal rights and less about sacrifice, loving our neighbor, more about building walls, keeping us in power, less about serving and about participating in the common good and less about enemy-loving, humble, self-emptying, peacemaking way of Christ, then our Christianity needs to be born again. That would be the time for an amen. amen. <laughs> there are things that have gotten into our Christian experience that sometimes we're not attentive to, but we breathe in polluted air and we breathe out disobedience in some way. And so these three things are like an unholy trinity. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The New Testament uses these often to describe the things that are going to pull us away from following Jesus. But what I find most fascinating is how little time Paul spends on describing and discussing these things, but how much time 
contemporary theologians and pastors spend on expounding on the problems, the problems of culture, the problems of all of these types of things. And as much as our neo-reform friends would want to make him into one, Paul is not a Calvinist. He's pre-Calvin. And Paul readily notes and will give you the problem of sin. So he's not making light about it, but one of the interesting things to do is just in this particular text in Ephesians chapter 2 to look about how many verses are spent on the problem versus how many are spent on the solution. Historically, particularly during the Reformation, Entire systems, in theologically and otherwise, were created which focused obsessively on the problem. And when we focus always, always, always on the problem, that becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling problem. Of the 22 verses in this chapter, for example, Paul spends three on the problem, and that leaves how many? Just do some quick math. Nineteen. 22 minus 3 is 19, right? I'm pretty sure it is. Okay, amen to that. Um, 19 verses are focused on the solution, and only three are focused on the problem. Because let's keep reading here in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4 and 5, Paul continues, but God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it's only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So the solution that God has to humanity wandering down the wrong path is not to intersect you on the path and make you feel like rubbish until you finally wallow enough to get around to changing. No, the picture that Paul paints here for us is that you were on a hike lost and alone, shivering in the dark, so far beyond knowing where you were or what was up that you were really beyond hope. You were hopeless and helpless. But then God stepped in with grace and with mercy, so powerful that it actually makes dead things come alive. I'm not sure what your mental picture of God is. But one of the problems that maybe is a byproduct of theological systems that focus obsessively on how wretched people are is that they can give us the unintended impression that God is obsessive about that and that God is just a tyrant up somewhere in the sky, a distant and punitive figure who is just waiting for you to step off the path by one step and you're going to get it in some way. But the picture that Paul paints for us here and throughout the book of Ephesians 
is quite the opposite. It's God that is so rich and overflowing in mercy and in kindness and in love that's so lavish that it just keeps getting poured out on us even when and while we are still lost. And to me, that picture that emerges is then that God is more like a a search and rescue team who a search and rescue team, they're all volunteers in our province. And when they get a call, they get up in the middle of the night out of the warmth of their bed, they leave their homes, and they go out into the backcountry to rescue some hiker who has wandered out into danger. And they expend every possible resource, searching and searching and seeking until they find the person who's lost. And when they come out, and when they're interviewed about it, I mean, pay attention to their tone. It's the most incredible thing to me. If I was a search and rescue team member and I went to rescue someone, I would say things like, well, that person was stupid. (laughs) Who in their right mind would attempt to hike the West Lions in high heels? (laughs) It should not be done. But the search and rescue people, when they interview them, they're so gracious. They rejoice that the person has been found. And they, they just gently invite others to choose a better path. So how does this type of interaction come about in our lives? Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed And you can't take credit for it. This is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For verse 10, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. In these three little verses, we get an incredibly wondrous and clear picture of who God is and how God operates. See, God is not just about making people who think that they're pretty good people already into slightly better people. It's about making people who were dead in their trespasses and sins recognize their deadness and choose life. And come alive. You see, friends, when you and I respond to God's goodness and God's love by placing our belief, our confidence, our trust, our hope in God and in what Christ has done for us, God saves us. Not because we were super amazing and God wanted us on his team. Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, salvation has to do with people being rescued from the fate that they would have otherwise incurred. It answers the question as to how that rescue has taken place and who is responsible for it, end quote. God is responsible for the rescue. God is the searcher. God is the seeker. God is the saver. And this, friends, is the really core difference between Christianity and many, many other religious systems. Because Christianity, most other religious systems, set out a course of things that you need to do 
in order to somehow earn or come to the place where you are favored. Whereas Christianity says, "Mm -mm -mm. it's all been done. It is finished. All that you is left for you is to experience the salvation that God has on offer through Jesus. Salvation is a gift, a grace gift from a gracious God. Ruth Walsh, at the back, wave Ruth. Ruth is one of our senior saints, and Ruth is forever reminding us what a glorious joy it is to know that everything's already been done. And that all we do is receive. So precious. But Brad, you might say, then what is this business in verse 10 about good works is that we're supposed to be doing? Isn't that some kind of like deferred payment plan where you get salvation up front, but you're locked into a contract, and then there are things that you need to be about in some way that you are sort of working off your salvation in some way? Not at all, friends. Some fundamentalists or some religious systems within Christianity might give this impression, but remember this core distinction between do and done. The invitation to do things versus something being done for you. See, the good works that we are invited to do here is a way of living, a way of walking on the path, not a way of earning God's favor in some way. Because when God gives you a gift of new life and when you come into God's family, when you're in relationship rightly with God, you desire to do things out of the Spirit's empowering and filling because of love, not out of duty. This is an invitation to participate in God's making of all things new. To do good, it's an invitation, not an obligation to do things, to do good works that will somehow earn you into God's good books. Because friends, we need to face up to the reality that we're not very good hikers. And so, spiritually speaking, we are going to wander off the trail yet again. In my own experience, I am forever tripping up and living with, and I know the things that I'm tempted towards, and you probably know the things that you're tempted towards. Whether it's things like anger, or lying, or not entering into a rhythm of rest and Sabbath, or withholding empathy, or all kinds of messy things. And you're going to have your own list of things that the world, the flesh, and the devil will tempt you toward. And you will stumble. But in those moments of Grace, God's marvelous grace, Jesus is present there and in every moment, inviting you to receive and participate in grace. Well, how do you do that, you might ask? Well, I want to walk us through three little steps that are from Ephesians 8, 9, and 10 that help us prepare our hearts for communion, which we're going to take Uh, in a few moments as a response to God's marvelous grace poured out in Christ. Step one is admit error. It's like the GPS that tells you, make a (laughs) U-turn. You have left the path in some meaningful way. And we need to actually say that, admit 
that. Say to God and to trusted friends, I am off the path in this area of my life. I have given over ground to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I've let gossip or partial truths cross my lips or I put them out on social media. I've left deeds of kindness undone that I know that God has invited me to do. And the Bible calls this admission confession. And it's just agreement that you are off the path in some way. And it's the start of the flow of God's grace into our lives again. So that's step one, admit error. Step two is invite correction, again from God and from others. This is not getting someone around you that finger-waving and saying, you should never do that again, that was horrible. This is an allowance by others to reach a handout and say, can I help you onto the path again? Where search and rescue finds people on the side of the cliff, the person needs to want to be rescued. They could, I suppose, say, no, 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 I'm good. (laughs) Keep the helicopter moving. I'm sure there's other people who need it more than I do. They have to actually say, I am willing. I need you to invite me back onto the path. And it bears noting that here that there are people in our world who are not open to this step. They don't believe that they are in danger in any way from the way in which they're living. And so they're not really looking for you to correct them. Now, where you have relational equity and where you have an open door, oftentimes that's an indicator that God's given you that opportunity to speak into their lives in a meaningful way, to correct them. But one of the challenges we have as Christians is that most of us speak without invitation on topics where people are not open to correction. And so if a person is hiking along the trail and they're overlooking at the flowers in some way, a lot of times Christians rush into the fray being like, buddy, Come on, the trail's back over here. you got to get with the program. And the person's like, I'm quite content looking at the flowers over here. You need to just buzz off and not bother me in some way. Oftentimes, we speak without invitation into places where people are not open to correction. And sometimes that's more about us and our stuff than it is about our friends. We need them to know that we're in the right and they're not in the right. We need them to know truth and where we stand on all kinds of issues. But a reminder that we do have a guide, a capital G guide, and that is the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit will lead and guide. It is the role, scripturally, of the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and to draw people to repentance. And oftentimes, God does this by showcasing the beauty and the wonder and the goodness of being on the path of redemption. That's why the language, I think, in verse 10 of of God's, you being created as God's masterpiece is used. Like, Like an art exhibit that you cannot wait to show a friend. Like, these are amazing paintings or sculptors. Like, this is just how it's done. This is so beautiful. Wouldn't you want to come and participate and see that? That's why the language of God's masterpiece is important. Let your life, friend, become a showpiece 
of God's goodness and God's grace that God might use you and your way of living to tell the world a better story. Because that is a, oftentimes the way in which God invites correction into people's lives. The third thing that we can do is to learn to receive. Learn to receive the grace that is offered so freely. And this is actually hard for many of us because we live in a society that is merit-based. And so meritocracy has a sneaky way of worming its way into our Christian experience where we think, oh, I'm just not worthy of God's grace. Think about if they, if they only knew, if people sitting around me in this church knew about my past, if they knew about the things that I wrestle and struggle with, they, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. And it becomes very hard for us. And this is why I think Paul reminds us again and again and again that, friends, God's grace poured out in our lives is not about works. Or it would degenerate into boasting, where people around you would be like, well, I think I was frankly more obedient in that particular area in my life. Or, hmm, I was a little bit more industrious in good works on that person over there. I'm not questioning their salvation. I'm just saying... So Paul says, listen, salvation is not a merit badge that you run around with to show everybody about all the good deeds that you have done. It takes all the boasting out of it. Not now, not ever, not in eternity. And learning to live into that grace is actually very hard work. And so it can be helpful just to practice that. Our worship team uh, in song is coming now, and we're going to move into a time of practicing receiving God's grace as expressed to us in communion. And even the posture that we move into communion with becomes important because we don't take communion, we receive communion. We do it regularly here at Jericho because it is a good practice for us to remind ourselves of the precious gift of life that has been offered up to us. Not just salvation, but all of our lives is an incredible gift of God to us. And so I'd invite you just to get the elements ready. And they've been placed on your seats for you. And if you need a gluten-free option, there's some available just beside the kids' check-in there at home. Take out the wafer symbolizing for us the body of Christ Jesus. The meal that we know as the Last Supper, where Jesus gathered with all of his followers, even Judas, who was in the midst of betraying him. And Jesus took bread, and he broke it, and he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take this and eat it. This is my body broken for you. The price of sins that we commit in our bodies was born in a body, a body that was crucified, that was buried, that was raised to life on the third day from the grave so you and I could know resurrection life. Let's eat together and as you do, remember Christ's body was broken for your healing.
now we ready our hearts to receive the cup. This cup contains the fruit of the vine. In this case, it's grape juice. And right now in the northern hemisphere anyways, it's harvest time. And so grapes are crushed and pressed. And Jesus' blood was poured out in death for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we drink this, we remember that Christ was crushed for our transgressions. He was bruised, scriptures say, for our iniquities. He shed his blood so that you and I and all who trust in him can be made whole. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your gifts to us. The gift of life. The gift of salvation. The gift of the empowering spirit who brings us into alignment with your goodwill and purpose. And so, Jesus, we desire in this place, in this moment now, to offer up our thanks to you for the gifts that we have received. And we're going to do that in worship, physically and embodied ways, by raising our hands, by kneeling. Jesus, we ask that we would not just encounter you, but that we would return thanks to you with all of who we are, for all of who you are. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we move into a time of worship and song, I'd invite you to stand with me if you're able where you are, and we will worship together. We have prayer response teams available at the back today. That's Dale and Katie and myself. They'll have a name tag on so that you know who they are, and that if anything is going on in your life that you want them to stand with you in, we would be pleased to pray with you. You can also just email prayer at jerichoridge.com. Let's worship and respond to God together, friends. <laughs>